This season of Don't Shoot the Messenger is brought to you by 91. 91 is an authorized financial service provider. Over the course of just over three months in 1994, more than a million Rwandans were killed, sometimes by their own neighbors, often in broad daylight. The total body count amounted to around 10% of Rwanda's total population. Somewhere around 250,000 women were raped. Yet two and a half decades later, Rwandans have, for the most part, found a peaceful way to live together, even former perpetrators and surviving victims. We wanted to see if their model had any lessons for the totally incomplete project of racial reconciliation in South Africa. Welcome to Don't Shoot the Messenger, the Daily Maverick podcast where we bring you the stories behind the stories. In our third season, rather than dwelling on South Africa's problems, we're looking at potential solutions. And the issue we're taking on over the course of the next two episodes is still one of the biggest elephants in the South African room. It's race relations in a country still scarred by the previous centuries in which racism was sewn into every fiber of the South African state. In simple terms, is there any way to solve racism? And are there any means by which we can achieve racial forgiveness? In this episode, we're looking at the example of Rwanda, a country torn apart by deadly ethnic divisions in the 1990s, whose government argues it has largely achieved national peace and reconciliation post-genocide. And we're talking to a man who bears one of the most notorious surnames in the history of South Africa, who has made it his life's mission to help undo the damage of his forebears. I'm your host, Rebecca Davis. My name is Lilian Omopiei. Long ago, before genocide, I remember when I was probably 10 to 11, I didn't know who is Hutu and who is Tutsi. We used to interact, we used to play together. Even if the parents give you bad eye, but you don't take much notice because you don't know why. And then 1994, the Hutus pick up the machetes and kill the Tutsis. The Rwandan genocide telescoped so much violence into just 90 days that its aftermath must have seemed utterly bewildering. Where to even begin when it came to trying to heal a nation which had seen ordinary citizens turn against each other with such hatred and ferocity? Well, for one thing, there was a judicial process comparable to the Nuremberg trials which followed the Holocaust. There were arrests and prosecutions. In fact, more than 120,000 people were detained in the years after the genocide. Among those convicted of genocide was the Prime Minister at the time, Jean Kambanda, who was sentenced to life in prison in 1998. And some of those responsible for fomenting violence, the genocidaires, are still being actively sought. Felician Kabuga, one of them, was only captured last year, in May 2020, 
after 26 years on the world's most wanted list. He was living in the outer suburbs of Paris, aged 87, and despite his age, he's still set to be tried in The Hague for crimes against humanity. But the Rwandan judicial process was only one element of the post-genocide social project. Another hugely significant feature, talking. Dialogue was acknowledged in Rwanda as absolutely key to breaking the cycle of inter-ethnic violence. What they called dialogue clubs were established all over the country, promoted on radio and TV, bringing victims and perpetrators together to talk, to unlock the way to reconciliation. There are countless organizations in Rwanda still dedicated to doing this. One such, the Institute of Research and Dialogue for Peace, runs what it calls Bitter Truth Sessions, which is apparently an appropriate title for the kind of talking that gets done. And then, in addition to talk, there's action. Since the genocide, every able-bodied Rwandan citizen between the ages of 18 and 65 must take part in community service for three hours once a month. It's called Umuganda, and it's based on the traditional Rwandan practice of collaborative work and helping. But in the shadow of the genocide, it has taken on another function too, one of social cohesion, making citizens feel that they are actively invested in taking care of the country and looking to its future. Uganda could involve citizens digging drainage ditches, or planting trees, or picking up litter, or any other public works-related task. And it's compulsory. If you don't do it, you get fined and can even face prison. That's one of the major critiques of Rwandan President Paul Kagame, that his methods can be a little oppressive, to say the least. To give another example, in the aftermath of the genocide, Kagame's administration also ushered in laws ostensibly to prevent hate speech, but which are reportedly also used to prevent criticism of the government. We in South Africa went in the opposite direction. After the authoritarianism of apartheid, which controlled almost every aspect of black people's lives and also forced white people to do certain things, like military service, we opted for a liberal democracy, where people would not, in general, be told what to do. But one of the side effects of this was that because reconciliation activities weren't mandatory, unlike in Rwanda, very few ordinary white people did anything to engage in an acknowledgement of where the country had been and where it was going. The joke was that the minute the transition to democracy happened, you couldn't find a single white person who had ever supported apartheid's ruling national party. It wasn't a very funny joke, really. For a start, it was flagrantly inaccurate, because the National Party actually won almost 4 million votes in the first democratic elections, enough to retain control of the Western Cape and to send 82 MPs to Parliament. Secondly, it wasn't funny, because it's also possible to see it as reflecting a worrying denialism about the reality of apartheid. In this sense, perhaps white South Africans were a bit like ordinary Germans after World War II who were reportedly in widespread denial about what the Nazis had done, to the point where Allied forces made regular Germans watch footage of the liberation of concentration camps before they would get food parcels. What South Africa had instead 
was the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. Now to the work of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. South Africa and its people came face to face with the past. At about 12 or 1 a.m., I was awoken by an assault. They were doing. He had a gun in his hand pointed at my forehead. He said to me, we are lying and you're going to tell us the truth, what we want. I was beaten up. And then they said to me, today you are going to die. It's 12 minutes to 7. The Truth and Reconciliation Commission resumes public they hearings. They tortured him and cut off his hands. They Last year, I went back and read the final report of the TRC, all 500 pages. I did this because people kept saying something I wanted to fact-check. I kept hearing comparisons between the Zondo Commission investigating state capture, which has been running since 2018, and the TRC. People would say things like, the Zondo Commission is the democratic South Africa's equivalent of the TRC. Reading the TRC report reminded me how ludicrous that comparison is. The investigators for the Zondo Commission have to slog through bank statements and committee records. Investigators for the TRC had to exhume bodies, at least 50 of them. Most of us are aware that the TRC heard thousands of accounts of grotesque violence and torture perpetrated mainly, but not exclusively, by apartheid police, soldiers, secret services units. But there are other facts buried within the TRC report which have been largely forgotten. Like that at the SABC, between 1975 and 1985, black employees who were summoned to a disciplinary hearing were offered a choice. They could be fired, or they could be shambocked and keep their jobs. Or like the case of the two South African soldiers who roasted a 63-year-old man to death over an open fire and received a 50-rand fine each. These are the kinds of realities about the apartheid system that South African society, the government, and the education system has made far too easy for people to forget or to claim no knowledge of in the first place. In the years directly after apartheid, maybe South Africans of all races should have been required, like Rwandans, to sit down, to face each other, and to talk it out. When we're back, we hear from the Favut who's still trying to get his country folk to do just that. Change is everywhere. Sometimes it's good, sometimes confusing, or so extraordinary that it challenges everyone and everything. But whatever change comes next, 91 will strive to do everything possible to make a positive change for your investments and for the world we live in. 91. Investing for a world of change. This season of Don't Shoot the Messenger is brought to you by 91. 91 is an authorized financial service provider. Have any questions or comments about the latest episode of Don't Shoot the Messenger? Why not post them on the comments section of Apple Podcasts and we'll try and look into them for future episodes. You can also rate and review us. Our podcast is only possible because of your engagement and we want to know what you think. In early 2020, just before the pandemic hit, my colleague Ayanda and I visited the whites-only enclave of Oranje in the Northern Cape. There's not much to do in Oranje, 
But one of the main tourist attractions is the Hendrik Verwoet Museum, which is located in the former home of Verwoet's widow, Betsy. The museum is quite a disturbing place because it's preserved as a kind of shrine to the former South African prime minister, who is often referred to as the architect of apartheid. There are scrapbooks of positive press clippings, both national and international, about Hendrik Verwoet. There are oil paintings of Verwoet and gifts from foreign dignitaries and his fishing trophies. The most macabre exhibit is the set of clothes he was wearing on the 6th of September 1966 when he was stabbed to death in the National Assembly by parliamentary messenger Dimitri Tsefendis. What there isn't, however, is any attempt to problematize Verwoet's memory, to look at the hugely destructive legacy of the policies he ushered into South Africa and the system of laws that would eventually be recognized as a crime against humanity. But someone who has devoted much of his life to interrogating that legacy is Hendrik Verwoet's own grandson, Wilhelm Verwoet. I mean, anybody who hears the surname <clears throat> will, of course, know that it's a bit of uh, uh, whiteness with, on steroids, you know. It's, um, I come from this family where my grandfather was, in many ways, one of the main architects of the system of apartheid. So from a young age, I grew up with that strong awareness of being part of this family, part of the Afrikaner community. Growing up, Wilhelm was part of a close-knit family, church, and wider Africana community, which deeply revered Hendrik Verwoet for liberating his people from oppression by the British. In fact, my grandfather was seen as a hero because of achieving the status of South Africa as a republic in 1961, which was seen as, as a, a vindication of Afrikaner ideals of liberation from British English imperialism. So that's what I grew up with, really, the kind of intra-white conflict between Afrikaans-speaking and English-speaking white South Africans with deep historical roots. And that, I think, obscured and blinded me to the ways in which we as white South Africans, and especially people in the Afrikaner community, have used our sense of victimhood in the past. We've used that to then impose on people even worse things and not take responsibility for what we were doing to fellow black South Africans and people of color. My journey, I think, has been one of not denying my cultural, ethnic, family roots, but to say that we also have to face what we are responsible for. And unfortunately, uh, within my family and also within the broader community, that has been seen as a kind of trail, you know, like how dare you challenge and criticize your grandfather, somebody who gave his life, you know, for our cause because he was assassinated, as you know, in 1966. Wilhelm says what changed him in the 1980s, what broke him out of his white Afrikaner cocoon, was being exposed to what he calls the human stories of black South Africans. And 40 years later, he still believes in the transformative power of dialogue, of talking and listening, and of storytelling. Today, Wilhelm works as a researcher and facilitator at the Unit for Historical Trauma and Transformation at the University of Stellenbosch, where he does what he calls white work. I remember being at a meeting with black colleagues speaking and 
and basically challenging a majority white audience to say, what are you willing to do to address what is still the unfinished business from the past? And just talking about her tiredness, about constantly having to educate white South Africans about the pervasive legacies of, of colonialism and apartheid. And then she finished by saying, what white work are you willing to do? And that has really stayed with me. And it's really, as I understand it, a challenge from black South Africans and people on the receiving end of the system of apartheid and colonialism to say to those who've been on the beneficiary end that we need to take more responsibility to educate ourselves about what has really happened in our country and what is still going on as continuities of that past. And then not just to do that at the intellectual level, but to actually be willing to internalize that awareness and translate it into a sustainable commitment to restitutional responsibility. For me, that's the, the, the two main parts of white work. For Helen is skeptical of the idea that racism can ever really be cured in individuals or that there's much legitimacy to the idea of being a recovering racist, which is what some white people call themselves. And he says that's because the nature of South Africa's terribly unequal society means that there's a very deep conditioning that happens to white South Africans at a very young age. He says that when he does storytelling work with young white South Africans, people born after 1994, he asks them the question, what is your earliest memory of encountering a black person? Almost without exception, that memory would go back to the domestic worker in the house or the person working in the garden. So we still sit with these, this kind of deep conditioning of unequal paternalistic power dynamics between us as racialized people. And that takes a long time to uproot. And when you go then to schools and most of your teachers are white, when you go to the doctor, most of the doctors are white. You know, if you go into your neighborhood, you know, the people with wealth often, you know, if you go to the beaches, like you're surrounded by these visible symbols of white privilege and it can feed into this kind of false sense of superiority. And that's what white work, I think, is trying to address. Just as much as black consciousness is addressing this kind of interiorized inferiority that comes with colonialism. White work needs to address this interiorized false superiority that we often mask and cloak behind all kinds of other ways of speaking and being, but it's there and I need to keep on watching and be vigilant. I've been thinking recently about the fact that the South African government seems to have decided that the most appropriate way to deal with racism is to throw racists in jail or give them punitive fines. We've seen a string of high-profile cases like this over the past few years. Penny Sparrow, Vicky Momberg, Adam Katzavellos. But I don't think anyone would claim that these punishments will solve the problem of racism. No one's going to stop being a racist because they might go to jail. They'll just stop saying racist things in public. Wilhelm says sometimes you might need a carrot rather than a stick. I remember working in Ireland because I worked for a number of years also in Ireland and Northern Ireland and also in Israel-Palestine. Sometimes the only way to get people to become involved is to see that the future of their children is at stake. You know, to find an incentive. I don't think you can really force people to change their values, their deep self. 
I mean, you can change behavior, and that's why we have legislation. That's why we have, you know, the criminalization of hate speech. And all that stuff is part of the picture. There's very strong social pressure um, backed up by the legal route, if necessary, to stop certain kinds of behavior because of the damage it continues to inflict. But that, I think, can only go that deep. I think for deeper change, we need to look for, I suppose, more creative ways to go on, I suppose, some kind of relational process that, that goes across the divides between us. Sometimes the only thing you can do is to have a rule and enforce it. But I, I just wonder if that will actually change the intergenerational dynamics. Because we know from other parts of the world, you can use force and you can stop behavior for a generation, perhaps two. But it doesn't go away, you know, the unfinished business, the racism, the prejudice, the fear, the even trauma. It, it doesn't go away. It just go below the surface. And a generation or two later, it comes back with a vengeance. And then you just get the cycle of blood, which, which people talk about in Israel and Palestine. Wilhelm believes that one of the only ways in which a society like South Africa can hope to establish healthy race relations is for individuals to enter into long-term, equal relationships across racial divides. That, in combination with some form of restitution from white people, the sharing of income or wealth or land in some tangible way. Wilhelm Favut acknowledges that his views aren't always very popular with white people. And that's understandable, he says, because this is difficult, uncomfortable stuff. But it also just might bring about a type of liberation, which regardless of what the law books say, South Africa is yet to really experience. Shoot the Messenger is a podcast brought to you by The Daily Maverick. This episode was produced by Haji Mohammed Dauji and written by Rebecca Davis. Editing by Tevya Turok-Shapiro. Sound mix by Bernard Kotze. And additional support from Catherine Kotze. You can listen to Don't Shoot the Messenger on The Daily Maverick's website, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. For more, subscribe to The Daily Maverick's newsletters and follow us on Twitter and Instagram. 